Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Behind every great song is a great writer. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth interviews with the accomplished and influential writers and composers behind some of those great songs, from the well-known to the ones you should know. On each episode, we feature a different writer sharing his or her insights into the creative process, their approach to the craft, and the stories behind the songs, from the hits to some of the lesser-known deep cuts. Whether you're a songwriter, a music lover, or just a fan of pop culture, be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes so you don't miss out on a single episode. We'd love to hear from you, so let us know what you think by sharing your thoughts at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Irresistible You, as recorded by Taj Mahal and written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Al Kasha. The original recording of that song by Bobby Peterson was Al's first charting hit in 1960, and he went on to land more than 20 additional titles on the Billboard Pop, R&B, Country, and Adult Contemporary charts. When Paul and I came up with the idea to launch Songcraft in late 2014, the very first person we approached was Al. Not only has he had an amazing career, but he has been a good friend to me and a co-writer and mentor of Paul's for many years. We knew we wanted to start with Al Kasha, and we're excited to share our conversation from his living room in November of 2014. That was the real start of the Songcraft podcast. Al's songs have been recorded by Jackie Wilson, Aretha Franklin, Bobby Darin, Elvis Presley, Fred Astaire, Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, Roy Rogers, Johnny Cash, Neil Diamond, The Four Tops, Etta James, Peggy Lee, Liza Minnelli, Roy Orbison, and Donna Summer, just to name a few. He has been nominated for two Tony Awards, two Grammys, an Emmy, four Golden Globes, and four Academy Awards, two of which he won when he and songwriting partner Joel Hirshhorn took home the Oscar for Best Song in 1973 and again in 1975. Al, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Scott and Paul. Well, let's get right into it. You uh, grew up in Brooklyn near the Vitagraph Warner Brothers movie studio, and I understand that by the fact that you were close to that studio is how you wound up kind of getting into the entertainment business to begin with. So tell us a little bit about how you got involved in that world. The Vitagraph Studios were owned by Warner Brothers Pictures. And my parents uh, and my my brother himself lived directly across the street from the studio. It was a studio that did shorts there and trailers. My parents were the barber and beautician for Vitagraph Studios. Mm-hmm. So that got me interested in writing songs. Yeah. And uh, as you began to get interested in writing songs, who were your earliest influences? I would say Rogers and Hammerstein were my most important, you know, God wrote Oklahoma and Carousel, you know. I was very much involved in loving the theater because I wanted to be a theater singer uh, rather than, I know I wanted to be a songwriter really at the time. So uh, they, they were my, and Irving Berlin, of course, will always be my greatest influence. Now, were your uh, parents big music fans? Did they, were they bringing music into your home? Uh, that you, were you listening to things on, on radio or records at that time when you were real young? That's a very good question. Yes, my mother could sing really well. And I thought I was going to wind up to be a, a singer and a performer rather than a songwriter. And I auditioned for shows on Broadway and I actually got in the show Annie Get Your Gun. Really? Yeah, I was a little Jake. I was the understudy to the original little Jake who was at work with Ethel Merman. And why I was so great about that is Irving Berlin wrote Annie Get Your Gun. I, I knew at that moment I wanted to then be a songwriter. What was it about that show? Were there certain songs in the show that, that just uh, really tripped your imagination and made you think, I want to write something like that? Oh, yeah, You Can't Get a Man with a Gun. 
They, they said, falling in love is wonderful, it's wonderful, so they say. And what I realized about Irving Berlin is that Berlin wrote like a Jewish grandfather. What I mean by that, he wrote like a rabbi. Well, I asked my own questions, Scott. What do you mean, Al, that he wrote like a rabbi? Jewish people have a tendency of asking a question and answering their own question. They write in opposites. They talk in opposites, religious Jewish people. I got the sun in the morning. I got the moon at night. Maybe it's because you love me too much. Maybe that's why I love you so little. So what I learned from Berlin uh, is that he was very eclectic, and I made up my mind that I would try to be as eclectic as he was, even at the age of eight years old. I write of all different kinds of songs. Hmm. Well, what do you remember about the, the very first song that you ever wrote? It was pretty terrible. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the very first song I wrote was called The Usual Line, which never got recorded. You, you give a girl a line to get her to, to go out with you. The first song was not good, but I want to say this about my high school. Madison High School, James Madison High School, which Carol King went to that school, and Barry Mann of Man and Wild had some really great songwriters come out of that school. This was in Brooklyn? This was in Brooklyn on Flatbush Avenue and 25th Street. We had a thing called Sing at Madison High School, and that meant the freshmen, the sophomores, the juniors, and the seniors competed against each other, wrote shows. So I started writing shows without realizing I was a songwriter. Wow. <laughs> it's amazing. And so when, when you wrote The Usual Line and you started writing those kind of pop songs, the idea was to write for Al Kasha, the artist? No, the idea was to write for Tony Bennett, the artist. Ah. <laughs> I didn't know Tony Bennett, but I loved Tony Bennett. Even back then, I did. And of course, everyone loved Frank Sinatra, so I love Frank Sinatra. But I think the person I love most of all, to be honest, was Frankie Lane. Hmm. Uh, who wrote uh, a lot of cowboy kind of songs. He wrote, uh, My Heart Goes With the Wild Goose Goes, you know. That's, but Frankie Lane was my first influence. And I wrote a song called, uh, called Baby, Baby, Baby. You yeah. Know? That was the influence of uh, Maybe, Baby. Oh, uh, oh Buddy Holly. Buddy, Buddy Holly, Holly. Yeah. that's right. Buddy Holly. See, I knew if I sang the song, you guys <laughs> But he was my next influence. Right, yeah. Well, tell us about... Um, the, the first song that you actually had recorded and how that came about. There was a thing called the Brill Building. And the Brill Building was at 1619 Broadway where songwriters met. And uh, I, while in college, actually, I, I, I didn't tell my parents I wanted to be a songwriter, even though they were sort of accepting that, but they thought I was going to become an engineer. So, uh, so I love two kinds of music, which is true to this day. And the two kinds of music I love is gospel music and theater music, because it's very dramatic. So you would meet with other songwriters down at the Brill Building. Talk a little bit about what, what, what it was that was special about the Brill Building and that atmosphere and what was happening there. Well, the Brill Building was just filled with songwriters. Lieber and Stoller you know, wrote all the, ja all the uh, Elvis Presley early hits. Uh, so we'd walk from publisher to publisher to publisher, office to office to office, playing our songs. They would say, Nat King Cole is up for a recording date. And everyone would write a Nat King Cole song. Uh, some rock and roll group was up for a recording date. Uh, and you'd write for that group. And the whole building, everyone was writing for the same kind. The Drifters were for a recording date. and But everyone was there. And uh, one writer influenced another writer just by hearing them. And I tried to team up with other people because uh, I felt myself as a pretty good lyricist, but I wasn't a melody writer yet. One of the people I met with was Luther Dixon, who was a very hot writer. He was a black writer from, from down south, but who lived in New, in New York. 
and he wrote 16 Candles, was one of his hits, a lot of hits he had. And uh, so I showed him a lyric that I wrote, a, a start, I didn't finish it, called Irresistible You. And he was a sort of a nutty guy, Luther, he was at least 15 years older than I was. And he said to me, let's go up to the Apollo Theater. So we went up to the Apollo Theater. I was one of the few white people who were there, by the way. And I was backstage, and there was a, there was a group called the Hollywood Flames. And they did a riff in their song, an instrumental riff. It went da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
um, you wrote um, some songs for Aretha Franklin. Yes. Um, and you're a co-writer on uh, Operation Heartbreak, um, which went to number six on the R&B chart uh, when she was still recording for Columbia in the early 60s. So let's take a moment now and just listen to a, to a little clip of Operation Heartbreak by Aretha Franklin. A lot of people don't know this about me, but I was the first youngest person ever signed to Columbia Records as a record producer. And they, uh, the Columbia Records had only white artists, basically. Rosemary Clooney, Guy Mitchell, uh, Tony Bennett, who's still there. So uh, they were looking for someone, and I, got, I heard the word they were looking for a young producer, or just for a producer who worked with black artists. And I actually went for an interview with them. And John Hammond, who found a guy named Bob Dylan, not too shabby, he, he interviewed me. And he, they said to me, you think you can get Jackie Wilson to come over to Columbia Records? I said, I'll try, but I, th- I think that's going to be difficult. The first assignment I have, John Hammond was having a heart operation. And he said to me, I have this artist named Aretha Franklin, and I'd like you to produce her. She was singing down in Greenwich Village at the Village Gate uh, nightclub. And she sang that night with a five-bar introduction, which is strange, to Rockabye Your Baby. And right. C.L. Franklin, her father, said to me, record that song with her. I was supposed to be rock and roll songs. That's not a rock and roll song. It's a right. great Al Jolson song. Yeah. So I wrote the other side called Operation Heartbreak. And uh, so I did Aretha Franklin's first record, and uh, it, was, it was thrilling. She was so good, by the way. Not that I have to tell your audience this, but she was so good. I remember taking four takes of, of Rockabye Your Baby. And she says, over the mic, she says, is that okay? I said, you, we were fine after the first take. <laughs> right. I only did three more takes just right. to satisfy you. Yeah. But you, your pitch is perfect and you're just so great. Yeah. Did, did you know right away that oh she was going to be... Columbia still didn't know. They thought of her as a jazz artist. Yeah. And I thought of her as a, a, a gospel singer, which she sure. was. You know? Yeah. And, so did the fact that you were a songwriter shape the way that you uh, produced records or approached the process? That's a very good question, Scott. I, I always think of the song first, not, not the demo, not the, not the singer singing the demo. Goddard Lieberson, he was the original president of the company, and Clive Davis, everyone knows that name, Clive Davis, sure. he was right under him. So as they signed Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet, which I thought was a mistake, by the way. So uh, Goddard Lieberson sent the note around, who wants to produce Steve Lawrence? And I actually wrote a note back, which took a lot of guts because he was a president of the company. I said, I think he's the most difficult to have a hit with. And Goddard Lieberson wrote back to me, and this is what he said. Because you feel it's difficult, you'll work harder than all the other producers to try to get a hit song for her. <laughs> That was the story of Go Away Little Girl, which sold three and a half million records. So. But that was obviously the right song oh, for Steve Lawrence. And, and it's interesting with you being such a great songwriter, having great songs at your fingertips all the time, but as a producer, somehow you knew in that moment 
to use someone else's song. That was uh, Jerry Goffin and Carole King, I think. Yes, you're right. So what? how does that instinct kick in for you as a producer? When to pick a song that you didn't write versus a song that you did write? Well, first of all, I'm a big fan of other songwriters. And I'm not saying that to be loved on your show here, but I really am a big fan. And I learn from them by listening to other songs. Now, with the Steve Lawrence record, where I will take some credit in this regard, I sped up the record an eighth of a tone to make him sound younger. I overdubbed him three times, one harmony and two straight singing, to make him sound younger. In fact, when he heard it for the first time, he said, who's, who's that? I said, you, Steve. <laughs> He didn't realize that I, he, even though he has wow. perfect pitch, he didn't realize I moved it up an eighth of a, a tone. Wow. So that's why he said, and I did blame it on the bossa nova with his wife, Edie Gomez, I produced that as well. Right. So he went to number one with Go Away, Little Girl. So I was a champ in Columbia Records. That's not ego, I just was having a good run. Blame yeah. it on the bossa nova, top 10 single as well. Top 10 single as well. That Barry Mann, who went to Madison High School as well, he was two years younger than myself. Not only in that time, but throughout, over the course of your career, um, what makes a great song? A great song is made of, uh, of being truthful lyrically, of touching your heart. Now, I, I believe that a lot of songs deal with loneliness. And I find that so people are lonely and you become the person playing their song at home and you are their lover or their friend. Like the song Carol King, You've Got a Friend. So a lot of songs I've written deal with lo loneliness. Yeah. And I, you know, Bobby Vinton was at Epic Records at the time. I didn't produce Bobby Vinton, Mr. Lonely. If you look at the hits Bobby Vinton had. And a lot of songs I've written are deal with loneliness and inspiring the person to get out of their life and become somebody. And what I noticed, by the way, is that a lot of Nashville hits, like Mitch Miller, if you've heard of that name, Mitch Miller. Sure. And Mitch Miller uh, would do a lot of country songs and popularize them, like yeah. Heartaches by the Number. Right. That Guy Mitchell did eventually. But, and he did uh, all those Hank Williams songs, Cold, Cold Heart. Right. So I started looking at what I was influenced by. I started looking at a lot of country songs that the writer in me, even though I was a kid from Brooklyn, and they dealt with unrequited love all the time. Hank Williams kept writing the same song over and over again, by the way. <laughs> I tried so hard, my dear, to prove that you are my everything. So it's unrequited love. He can't win her over. Right. Yeah. He, 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 he can't stop loving you. you just go through all You're of this. You're cheating heart. You're cheating heart. Right. He, he's, this love that he had in his life. And that was his own personal life he was writing about. But that appealed to people because they felt that they couldn't find that unrequited lover that they wanted. Well, you know, uh, many great songwriters are recognized as part of a team. You've already, in our conversation, mentioned Rodgers and Hammerstein and Lieber and Stoller. And, of course, there's other well-known songwriting teams like Backrack and David or Lennon and McCartney. Or, you know, we could name a bunch of them. But you had already experienced success uh, as a songwriter um, before you found your best-known songwriting partner in Joel Hirschhorn. So uh, tell us how you first met Joel and, and who he was. Well, Joel Hershon was a songwriter going around the Brill Building as well. I didn't know him at that time from all the songwriters. But there was a lady named Harriet Wasser, and she was head of Bobby Darren's fan club. And Joel Hershon lived on the same street that she did. So Harriet Wasser put us together. And the very first song we wrote wasn't a hit, but it got recorded immediately. Uh, and it was called uh, by Nancy Ames. It was really a television personality. It was called... It scares me, and we wrote both sides, and I produced the record as well. And I found with Joel, I, I like to write quickly, even though you have to think of the lines. And Joel 
sort of catch up to me. Joel made me a better writer than I was. Mm-hmm. And I always respect that. And so when, once you guys started writing together and found your flow, you had songs recorded by Jay and the Americans, Ronnie Dove. And then there was a particularly notable song that you had recorded um, by a guy named Elvis Presley. Yes. <laughs> a song called Your Time Hasn't Come Yet, Baby. And that one charted on both pop and country in uh, 1968. Let's hear a little bit about of that song. Your time hasn't come yet, baby. You've got a lot of dreams to go. Your time hasn't come yet, baby. But when it does, your heart will know. You're gonna be a beautiful woman Because you're such a beautiful child And when you start to bloom Just like a rose in June I bet the schoolboys all go wild But right now Your time hasn't come yet, baby You got a few dreams to go Your time hasn't come yet, Your time hasn't come yet, baby Tell us a little bit about writing that song and... Um, did you intend to write it for Elvis? Did you know what you were pitching it for at the time? I, I, yes, Joel and I intended writing it for Elvis Presley. Uh, and uh, Lieber and Stola were no longer writing for, uh, who got all the early records. And then Thomas and Schumann, that's another team. And so it was a song we wrote for a movie. The original title was My Time Hasn't Come Yet, Baby. And this is f- funny to me because he's such a major star. I was Presley. They said, would you, "Would you mind changing it to your time as a coming baby?" I said, "Elvis Presley wants to make it your time as a coming baby. You got all the permission in the world." Elvis <laughs> <laughs> so, can do what Elvis wants. <laughs> right. I'm not a prostitute, you know. But, <laughs> but if you want to change it to your dispelling time, any rumors right yeah, now. Right. But but. but uh, so, uh, and I told you earlier, I was an impressionist, so I did the demo and I sang it as close to Elvis Presley's style that I could write it. Well, I was going to ask you that, if there's a different way that you approach a demo for an Elvis Presley. Oh, absolutely. Every artist that I want, I, I'm a writer who writes for artists all the time. Some, some people write a general song, but I have that artist in mind, be it Johnny Mathis or, or Presley or Jane the Americans or whatever I had, Ronnie Dove included. So my my demos are made up of writing in that style or singing like that person. If I couldn't, I would try to find a singer who would sing like that person. In fact, an interesting thing too, which I'm uh, songwriters are very uh, superstitious, and I just asked my wife Seal to marry me, and the ending of of, of the, your time is coming. It goes da 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 which is the w- wedding march. Yeah, right. I said, this is so weird. <laughs> so I said, my wife is lucky for me. <laughs> well, you and Joel had some significant activity by the group Peppermint Rainbow, most notably the, the top 40 hit, Will You Be Staying After Sunday, which sold more than a million copies. Yes. Um, but you're best known for your collaborations in the film world. And uh, you wrote for the movie Gidget Goes to Rome in 1963. And of course, there was the Elvis song that was used in the film Speedway that we just talked about. But it wasn't until after you moved to California in 1968 that you had your greatest success with your songs in film. Uh, now, was that relocation from New York to the West Coast a, a conscious decision to, to focus on composing for the movie world? Well, I always wanted to write songs for movies because, remember, I was born from across the from the Vitagraph studio, which was Warner Brothers. So in the back of my mind, I sort of treated my own life as if I were the jazz singer, the story of the Jewish boy who writes songs and then will sing them himself and, and sort of living that fantasy in a way. 
But actually, I I wanted to write for movies, but the movie business was done out here in California. Right. And Clive Davis offered me the job to run the publishing company for CBS. And they had a film arm called Cinema Center Films. And so so I said to Clive, I said, all right, if I write songs for uh, for the movies, he said, sure, we want you to write some songs for the movies. So you moved out to California to take the job. Yes. I see. But at the same time, I knew in the back of my mind that I wanted to try to write some songs for movies. So actually, the first picture, April Fool's, that we did for Cinema Center is that Backrack and David wrote the title song, which I hired, which is sort of funny. I'm hiring them. Right. And and Marvin Hamlish did the background score, and then there were songs in a disco, and Joel and I wrote some songs in the disco, so everyone was represented. Yeah. Well, I want to hear a clip of uh, of a radio advertisement for the film, The Cheyenne Social Club, which featured Jimmy Stewart and uh, Henry Fonda. And uh, we'll hear Stewart and Fonda singing Rolling Stone, which which you and Joel Hirshhorn composed for the movie at both the beginning and end of that radio spot. So let's take a listen to that. Just like a rolling stone. Imagine James Stewart and Henry Fonda as two cowboys who inherit the most popular establishment in the West, the Cheyenne Social Club. Hello, fellas. Welcome to the Cheyenne Social Club. National General Pictures presents James Stewart and Henry Fonda as the new owners of the Cheyenne Social Club, where being a man of property isn't easy because the property you've inherited is the six girls who live there. James Stewart and Henry Fonda are the owners. Shirley Jones and Sue Ann Langdon are two of their girls, and director Gene Kelly put it all together. The Cheyenne Social Club. Oh, rated GP, all ages parental guidance. Now that's a great story about about the Cheyenne Social Club. I now left CBS Films because I was offered to run another company called National General, and they were doing this picture called the Cheyenne Social Club. And and Gene Kelly was the director. It was a thrill meeting Gene Kelly, to say the least. So he said, write a song for uh, Henry Fonda and Jimmy Stewart. So Jimmy Stewart and Henry Fonda walked into the room, and I was in shock because to see these two stars is overwhelming because they're so identifiable. And Henry Fonda actually said, I don't want to sing songs. I'm not a songwriter, a singer. So Gene Kelly said, oh, let them write something. He said, okay, I'll, I'll sing the song. So finally, we, we, we would meet at 3 o'clock every day to go over this very simple song that only had two chord changes, you know. So we uh, finally comes to the recording session, and I can't get Jimmy Stewart to sing in time. He's bar, <laughs> he's bars behind the orchestra. <laughs> right. I, and Gene Kelly has a fit. You know, this is the opening of the picture. What am I going to do? So finally, I, I, at 1 o'clock in the morning, I called a guy named John Biner, who was an impressionist friend of mine. And I said, John, you got to do me this favor. He said, what's that? I said, I have did this picture with Jimmy Stewart and Henry Fonda, and you got to sing the Jimmy Stewart part. He said, Al, I do him in my act, but I don't know if I could. So we go to Larrabee Sound. I, I persuaded the guy to open the studio. I did a lot of independent work there. So not to make this story too long, we were done at 4 or 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning. And I went back to Gene Kelly, and I said to Gene, I, I think I fixed it. And Gene said, what did you do? I said, I had John Biner do Jimmy Stewart's part. And he said, uh, and I said, I don't want to lie to him. And Gene, I always remember the sign of Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly said, it's never a lie unless he asks you, that's not me. 
<laughs> so I, uh, so they walked into the room. I could not look at Jimmy Stewart, G Henry Fonda, because I was, uh, this lie was living. And I was, pr <laughs> I was praying at the corner of the room. And I always remember Jimmy Stewart with that sort of Indiana draw. He said, to, now, now, Hank, see, 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 we're really wonderful. I told you it'd be great. 80% to this day is not him. It's <laughs> John Minor. <laughs> so after the Cheyenne Social Club, there were several more movie projects. Um, yes. And you guys kept going with this kind of new Hollywood career. And then came one of the moments of your career and of your life as a songwriter when you wrote The Morning After for the 1972 film, The Poseidon Adventure. That was performed on screen by the actress Carol Lindley, though I believe they used a vocal double, right? Yes. For her? And the song, of course, went on to win the Academy Award for Best Original Song, an amazing accomplishment. So tell us the story of how that song was written. Well, th that's an important song, not just because it went to number one all over the world. I'll tell you why it's important. For, for songwriters who listen to this story, there was a fellow named Happy Go Day, and Happy Go Day was a publisher in New York that I knew. And I'm a very big believer to give advice to other songwriters in what I call paying it forward. Try to help other people. Not to be corny, try to help other people because somehow it'll come back to you. Now, I didn't do anything that was earth-shaking for Happy Go Day. He worked for a publisher in, in New York. And I was producing Edie Gourmet. And he played me some songs and he said, Al, I, you got to do some of my songs. I'm, I think I'm going to lose my job. So I recorded some of his songs. They were good songs. I wouldn't record a bad song. Now, cut forward, eight years later, he's on the 20th Fox lot, and Joe and I were walking around the 20th Fox lot, and Happy Day said, what are you guys doing here? So I said, we're trying to meet with some producers regarding a picture. And Happy said, well, they're doing a picture called A Poseidon Adventure. And I always remember when you helped me, Al. I said, yes. He said, why don't I recommend you and Joel for it? I said, you work for Irwin Allen? I said, don't, I'm working on the lot for Arthur Jacobs, who did Planet of the Apes. So Joel and I went in and got a copy of the script. And my wife made dinner that night, and Joel read the script while I was having dinner and vice versa. Joel was having dinner. And we stayed up the entire night and wrote the morning after. That was on a Thursday. And uh, we played it for, I barely knew the song myself because we just wrote it. You, you had to live with it a little bit. Right. And uh, uh, Ronaldine, the director, said the original title was There Has to Be a Morning After. And Ronaldine said, why don't you use the word There's Got to Be a Morning After. So we, we, I agreed with him. That was a stronger word. We played it on a Thursday. We did the demo because they needed it in the picture on a Monday. We worked the whole entire weekend. And, and it's the band that's sort of, it's just a four-piece band, and Renee Armand sang the song. And I just had this feeling in me, not to, I, I'm not that superstitious, but I said to Joel, walking off the lot, I said, we're getting it nominated for Academy Award, we're gonna win the Academy Award. And Joel <laughs> said, there you go again, Al. <laughs> and, and we did. You know, that, that one moment that you mentioned before about changing it from there has to be a morning after to there's got to be a morning after, that's one thing that a lot of people probably don't know about songwriting is how pivotal one little word can be. Stephen Sondheim said that music is richness and words are power. Mm. So there's got to be a morning after. There's got to is a stronger word that has to be. Yeah. It's, it's, it's more assertive. So I, I, Joel and I, not because we wanted to do the picture, but it was just really better. And, and one word can make a better song. Well, let's listen to your acceptance speech at the 1973 Academy Awards after you and Joel were announced as the winners by Sonny and Cher. Winners are Al Kasha and Joel Hirschborn for the morning after. 
thank you. I want to give my thanks to Erwin Allen, the producer, and Ronald Neen, and of course Lionel Newman, and a special thanks to Happy Go Day, and most of all to the Academy. I'm very extremely grateful. And you made two people very happy in Brooklyn tonight, Rose and Irving Kasher. So I want to thank you for that. Now, you ended your speech by mentioning your parents, Rose and Irving Kasha, and you've been transparent about the fact that your folks had some personal struggles, uh, but you managed to to transcend that and and to find success. Um, I don't want to go back too much, but just as an aside here and thinking about, okay, this is the moment, this is the, you're standing on the stage, you've accepted your Academy Award, there's no question now, you have have made it, you have arrived. what were some of the ways that that your parents influenced your development as a songwriter and a person? My father was actually a very violent man from Poland and spoke with a Polish accent. And, and he was, talk about child abuse, he hit my brother and I pretty wildly and mm-hmm. my mother. But I felt it was the, the appropriate thing to be candid, to thank your parents. My mother did get my aunt to put some money up to give me singing lessons, and she sang. And I, I was singing in the synagogue all the time. Uh, I knew how to read Hebrew, by the way. I sang for what's called a cantor, which is a is a singing person. So she was. My mother was influential in that regard, and she wanted to be a singer, by the way. Yeah. And so I. I that's why I felt this is a time to to compliment your 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 parents yeah that yeah. was the real reason right and i wanted to bring up new york that's why my parents <laughs> in brooklyn <laughs> right right let's let your roots show a little yeah. bit yeah i love new york yeah well coming back to the morning after i mean you you won the oscar but it was also your first number one pop hit when maureen mcgovern recorded it in in 73 um and i believe that was actually Maureen's first record, which wound up selling over a million copies, and she received a Grammy nomination for Best New Artist. Uh, Let's hear a little bit of her definitive recording of The Morning After. There's got to be a morning after If we can hold on through the night We have a chance to find the sunshine Let's keep on looking for the light. Uh, so, Al, you've been involved in so many projects over the years, but this is probably the song that you're most identified with. And how do you feel about this song after more than 40 years? Well, I feel it's closest to my identity, or at least the identity I wanted Joel on to be known for. Uh, I'm a born-again believer. I, I try to inspire people. I don't care if I was Jewish or, or a Muslim, I believe in inspiring people. And Mr. Hammerstein was 19 years old. He lost his mother. And she said to Oscar Hammerstein, promise me that you're going to write songs about hope. And Hammerstein wrote, I'm stuck like a dope on this thing called hope. That's a line from Cockeyed Optimist. And if you go through his catalog, you're going to see the word hope a lot, or songs that dealt with inspiration hope. So that gave me a key to my own identity because I was being beaten up pretty badly by my father and stuff. So I always hung on to the word hope regarding my career, like Joel's, there you go again, you know what I mean? Always the next step. So the song went a lot to me. And over the years, uh, for example, without being corny, there was a girl going in for a brain operation. 
And she said to the doctor and the nurses that she would like to, on our earphones to listen to the morning after before that. I'm moved by that story. Yeah. And so she heard the morning after and before the operation, and she said it helped her. Wow. So there are things like that that happen for songwriters in, in their lifetime. Well, Maureen McGovern came back into the picture, of course, again in 1974 when she performed... Uh, we May Never Love Like This Again, another song that you and Joel wrote together, and that was for the film The Towering Inferno. Uh, and, and her recording landed on the Billboard pop chart. It became a number five hit in Australia. Um, and then, of course, you and, and Joel won another Oscar. Um, when you wrote that song, did you have Maureen in mind specifically uh, for We May Never Love Like This Again? So th- there's a story behind it. Uh, I, Lionel Newman, the head of music at Fox at that time, uh, I asked him, is it going to need a song for The Towering Inferno? He said that Erwin Allen hasn't made up his mind. He kept saying this over and over again. Well, I had the gumption of calling Erwin Allen the secretary and said, is there going to be a song in The Towering Inferno? <laughs> and she said, uh, don't tell anybody, but they're, they're looking for a song. So again, I got a copy of the script, and I said, Joe, we got to write this song very quickly. Uh, Johnny Mercer gave me uh, great advice about songwriting for a movie. Don't tell the whole story. Tell the philosophy. Anyway, to get back to it, so I went in, we paid for our own demo, and we may, we may never love like this again. And uh, the, the secretary set up a meeting with Erwin Allen. He, I was very nervous, to be honest, because it was a great opportunity again. And Erwin Allen had the teak a desk why this is important and that had I, I brought my tape recorder in those tape recorders that they were big heavy set things right I put the tape recorder down on his desk and he says you're breaking my effing desk and I was scared enough to play the song for him <laughs> right. we played the song and he said well I'm not sure if it works and then suddenly I came up with this thought I said why don't you ask your secretary to come in <laughs> And he said, what do I have to have? I said, she's public. I wasn't going to give up. <laughs> right. So we played the song again. So Erwin heard the song again. And he said to Bobby, what's her name? Bobby, what do you think? She said, I like it. He said, oh, we'll put the song in the picture. <laughs> wow, thanks, Bobby. <laughs> and I met Steve McQueen at that time. I met Paul Newman. And that was an experience in itself. Right. Wow. It's, it's another amazing moment in your partnership with Joel. Yes. Um, and as we look at that partnership, you know, we, we know of other partnerships like the, between Elton John and Bernie Taupin. We sort of know Bernie wrote the lyrics, Elton wrote the music, and we've learned a lot over the years about the Lennon and McCartney partnership, how that kind of worked. Tell, tell me a little bit inside the, the partnership of you and Joel. What were some of each of your strengths and weaknesses, and how did you lean on one another as songwriters? How did that play into your writing? We, we always, we're title people. I'm old-fashioned in a way. We try to think of a title that fit the picture. And I think that's why we got so many movies, not just of winning the Academy Award, but we work with the director generally, or really read the script. So the way I work with Joel is that there's a corny word, but I, I want kids to learn this word, which Paul, I know that you know this word, and Scott, is called prosody. And prosody is a word called prosody, which actually means it's a fancy word for the fitting of words to music. Like the moment I wake up, the wake up notes go up. And it goes exactly where the melody, you know, let me take you down, where the melody goes down of Lennon and McCartney. So I always felt strong about prosody, and so, so did Joel in that regard. So 
we would think of the title and and we always thought of the first we don't we went to what should we call the hook of the song or the chorus of the song and if we could get that proper prosody then the song would write itself and so that was the most important thing to me was pro, was the prosody of it so the the human being would hear the song that way and and Joel you know not because I've written books on songwriting but the Joel went along with me in that regards now this is strange. I was really more of the lyricist and he was the melody writer. We reversed places almost. And I started writing more melody and he started writing more lyrics because he really wanted to be a novelist actually. Hmm. And he was, a, he was a better pro, a prose writer than I was actually. And I don't mean that to be humble. He really was a better prose writer. He could make the lines more powerful because he, he read more than I read. You know, not that I didn't read books, but he, he was very knowledgeable. But he was weaker on prosody. So I started taking that, that role over. I said, this note got to go up, Joel. It's got to go down. But we start, you know, I'm old-fashioned. We start with a song title. And then you were the prosody police. Yeah, I was, the, pro- <laughs> I was the prosody policeman. Nineteen seventy-eight, Candle on the Water for Pete's Dragon. A different kind of movie than the movies that you'd done before. You guys were almost kind of the Disaster Brothers right. with Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno. The line about us is, 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 is the Kasha Hirsch and write love songs for disaster pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and then here comes this super fun movie with a cartoon dragon. And did you welcome the chance to do something kind of different and to write for a different kind of film, a little less drama, a little more um, light-hearted type of thing? The way Peace Dragon came about is that Joel and I wrote a, a TV special. It's called a musical special, which they don't do anymore. And the, I asked my brother, who was a theater producer, for an arranger that he had in mind, because this is more theater. And he mentioned Erwin Costell, who did the arrangements for West Side Story. So I called Erwin Costell. So he was really, I got him this nice job to do this Chevrolet special. And I said, I'd love to work at Disney. And he did the arrangements from Mary Poppins and most of the Disney pictures in the 60s. Uh, you know, this would be an honor to write for Disney. Because as a kid, I would say out in the snow in New York at the Christmas shows at Radio City Music Hall. That would be the, the big to-do yeah. in New York. So anyway, we, uh, he introduced us to the Disney people. And Joel and I played them a score that we wrote for a musical that they never did of ours, by the way, of David Copperfield, which we eventually did on Broadway but to show them that we knew how to write a theater musical. See, I want songwriters to hear this. Writing for the theater is a different art form than writing pop songs. Everything that you write has an art form about it. R&B song is different than a country song. A country song is different than the writing for the theater. A theater song is different writing for, for a movie. So to get back to Pete's Dragon, so uh, they gave me the script and it was only 20 pages long. It was more like a treatment. So I, I placed the songs where I thought the songs would be. Again, I stayed up pretty much the whole night. This was a great opportunity for Joel and I. So I met, and met with, with uh, Bill Walsh and Jerome Cortland, who was going to be the line producer, and they were now calling it Pete's Dragon. So we placed the songs, and we got hired at, at Disney, and it was the best thing that happened for us. Not only did, did we did the musical, but suddenly we did Freaky Friday. We did May the Best Man Win. 
we were their guys in the 70s yeah. at Disney. We had an office at Disney, which was great. And, you, and they still allowed us to write for other studios. You kind of had the best of both worlds of having the opportunity to be rooted at Disney, but not exclusive there. So you were still able to pursue other opportunities. Exactly. And, and you know, I think to me, one of the things that's really interesting um, is that in the 70s, you began teaching songwriting seminars and that you and Joel uh, wrote this book. You know, if they ask you, you can write a song, the first of, of several books that you've written. Um, you know, today we just sort of take for granted that there are all sort of books about songwriting and the process of songwriting, but this was really probably the first instructional type work on that subject. Um, and thinking, you know, you are still fresh from two Oscar wins. I mean, you, your career is hot. Uh, the songwriting world can be a very competitive place. So what compelled you to share your secrets and your wisdom with other budding songwriters? I think when you, when you write something to help somebody without being corny guys, uh, you, you, you know, when you, when you, there's a line that Oscar Hammerstein wrote, which he actually is a Chinese proverb. When you teach the people you teach, you teach yourself as well. But when, sometimes when I say this so much, I say, so, oh, so uninspiring, Al, when you make it so cl clinical. But there's nothing clinical. It's just being well-crafted, like a baseball player, knowing that where the ball is going to be thrown to him. So every th art has a, has a craft about it. And, and uh, uh, I just wrote a, a new book. I was going to ask you about that. The Ultimate Book on Songwriting, which uh, Neil Diamond gave me a wonderful quote. And I, I wrote some of the early songs for Neil Diamond. I signed to Columbia Records and they dropped them, which is funny. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> they dropped them and they had to sign them for $20 million when they re-signed them. By the way. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that you very much have the, the spirit of a teacher. You've also been a, a spiritual mentor to a lot of people. Um, and I know that you had a, a powerful conversion experience of your own in the 70s and, and went on to host Bible studies in your home for many years and, and that attracted other songwriters, including Bob Dylan. Um, and can you share with us a little bit about your relationship with Bob, particularly as it relates to that period in the late seventies and early eighties when he was recording what were some fairly controversial gospel albums? When I was at Columbia Records, John Hammond signed Bob Dylan. And after his, fir his first CD, which a lot of people don't know, only sold about seven or 8,000 records. It wow. was a major bomb. And so a man named Dave Kaprilik, who's head of A&R, which R means artist and repertoire, he says, we're gonna drop Bob Dylan. I don't know what took the guts in me, but I was at this producer's meeting, and I say, we can't drop Bob Dylan. They said, why can't we, he's, he's song's going for seven and eight minutes. <laughs> and I said, I don't, and I actually putting this on tape. I said I don't love the way he sings myself, but he's a great songwriter. Yeah. They said, oh, I said I'm a fellow songwriter, and I swear I, I I just know he's a great songwriter. So Bob Dylan stayed at Columbia Records because I spoke up for him. And John <laughs> Hammond actually thanked me. Wow. Thank you for speaking up for Bob Dylan. I, I think legions of music fans would also want to thank you for that as well. <laughs> so then, then now we pay it forward. We go and and Bob Dylan shows up at, at my Bible study. Bob Dylan is a, what I call as a seeker, and, I, and he sits in the back, very quiet, and everybody leaves. I get a knock on the door about a half hour later, and it's Bob Dylan with his friend Clark Mathias. He says, I'd like to ask you some questions, being a fellow Jew. 
So he asked me some questions. Then he asked me some songwriting questions. And I said, Bob Dylan's asking me songwriting questions. Oh, I'd like to ask him some. And I, he said to me, who's your favorite songwriter, Zal? And I said, um, well, the people who, who are really great that people don't realize how great they are is Chuck Berry is a great rhymist and Lee Brinstola, and he had respect for me, and he said, now you must be a good songwriter. <laughs> he said, the fact that you would pick them, because actually they're my favorites too. He said, I can't do what Carol King does. I said, what's that, Bob? He said, you guys in the Brill Building. I said, I'm no longer at the Brill Building. He <laughs> said, but you knew how to write hooks in songs. I don't write songs with hooks. And it bothers me, I don't know how to do that. I said, whatever you're doing <laughs> works, Bob, so just keep doing it. I said, you follow the philosophy of a repetition principle, which I believe in, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't think he, we made that up. So he said, well, that, that's true. But he says, I, I, I write, which I knew at the time, because I just said that seven, eight minutes, I keep writing songs till I feel that I finished the thought right. that I wanted to say. So we spoke for a while, and he asked me a lot of questions regarding the Bible, but way beyond my learning. And he stayed till about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. That's how long he stayed there. Then he started, uh, songwriters are very superstitious. And we had, a, at that house on Roxbury Drive, we had this fireplace. And, and I gave, a, this is crazy, I gave Bob Dylan a key to my house. <laughs> so I let him come to the house, and I would hear this guitar playing. I'd be upstairs sleepy with my wife and he'd be starting to write some songs, of which he heard biblically. And, and it's amazing, because he, he, he wrote, you gotta serve somebody in our house. Wow. Wow. And, and I was recently, because I knew we were doing this interview today, and I said, gee, he reads the Bible, he gets these great titles, I read the Bible, and don't get these titles. You know? <laughs> and people ask me, is he a born-again believer? But from my standpoint, he's a born-again believer, and I'll tell you why. You don't write 34 songs <laughs> about something you don't believe in. Right. So he wrote 34 songs during that whole period. A shot of love and, and shout and just a whole bunch of you know, great, great songs. Right, when he returns. Yes, yeah. and the luck in front of our uh, fireplace, he was felt that that was lucky. And, and he kept coming to Bible study for about I'd say for two or three months, and then he disappeared. Yeah, and I hear from him from time to time. At times, he gets a little angry at me because I say he's a born again believer, and he is a born again believer. I will say that to my dying day, but he doesn't like to be stamped as one thing. Yeah, and he went to synagogue after that, and he's just a seeker in that regard. Yeah, I think he, you look at Dylan's career, and he's always tried to avoid being pigeonholed you know exactly. as soon as he's the the folk uh spokesperson he goes and he goes electric you know and then he he sort of uh goes and does the gospel period for a while he's he always did what people didn't expect him to do and as soon as people started expecting it he switches gears so alan your career we've seen pop we've seen r&b we've seen movies for films um and by the mid 80s you started to find some success with country songs you had hits by marie osmond tommy rowe and the burrito brothers Charlie Ritz recorded one of your songs from the film Take This Job and Shove It, which is a movie that you also produced. So you'd already had that success in these other fields. Tell me a bit about the transition to writing for the country genre and, uh, and how you might have started approaching that kind of music differently than what you had done before. I take everything on as a challenge in life. I just do. You know, uh, that I want to be the songwriter's songwriter. I'm not the best songwriter that ever lived, but I want to learn my craft as much as possible. 
And so getting into country music, I decided to, to, to rent a lot of country movies. And the language is different than this kid from Brooklyn, <laughs> even though I'm an adult now. Well, uh, you said about the meatloaf, remember the, the three and one, did you call it? Uh, the meat and three? Meat and three, yeah. <laughs> right. Now, I never heard that expression yeah. until you and I, Paul, wrote some songs together. Which, of course, is a, a restaurant in the South where people can get a, a meat and three vegetables. A meat and three vegetables. Yeah. So, there, so I made a lot of notes, pages and pages of notes of language. So, so when, when you and I wrote Streets of Heaven, you know, that, that title I heard from a, a Lifetime movie, I, I'm dangerous that way. If I hear a title, I'll write it down immediately. I always have a pen. And I heard someone on this Lifetime movie, my wife loves Lifetime movies, and they said Streets of Heaven. I said, oh, that's a great title. I wrote it down. She said, you love this movie? I, like I love this title. <laughs> so, so the language is what I started to learn. And, so, and then I produced the movie, which is true. I was the associate producer of Take This Job and Shove It and wrote some songs for it. And we had Charlie Daniels. We had, you know, some really great country people. You didn't write the song. I said, I did. I wrote the song. But, man, you're from Brooklyn. How would you know you're from the Brill Building? So I made it as, as a, a thing that to learn. That each craft has its own quality about it. And you have to learn what Stephen Sondheim does. You have to learn what Rogers and Amazon. You have to learn what Jerry Herman does. You have to learn what God rest his soul, Marvin Hamlish and, and, and Cleveland knew. You mentioned your new book yeah. and hoping that people will be able to get their hands on it. Um, do you have a website or how will people get their hands yeah, on your book? It's through Amazon they can get my book. There's a Kindle version, yes. Diane Warren gave me such a beautiful quote, you know. And, and, and Neil Diamond did, and, and, and Lamont Ozier. Can't get more three better than that. <laughs> and it's called The Ultimate Book on Songwriting, Songwriting yes. by Al Kasha. Yes. What's a song that you've written that you would consider your favorite? There's a song I wrote that no one knows from Precious Moments, which is a children's show. And uh, that's one of my favorite songs called Precious Moments. And the song is called Precious Moments. Yes. I have to look that one up. And is there a song that you heard by someone else that you thought, man, I wish I wrote that song? Yes, uh, Total Eclipse of the Heart. Bonnie Tyler. Yeah. I love that song. What is it about that song that, that appeals to you? It's a performance song. And it, it touched me so much. I remember driving one day and actually pulled the car over to the side. I tears pouring in my eyes. Wow. Because it was so emotional. Yeah. And, and, and I said, wow, that, I got to do that. I got to write that kind of song. I think it's fascinating that for so long now you have been a teacher, an instructor of songwriting, but have never stopped being a student of songwriting. Never. You have continued to push into new areas and try different things and, and remain uh, sort of that being the teacher and the student at the same time. And I think that I look at your career and like the Energizer Bunny, you just keep going and going. And so here we, 2001, uh, your song Anywhere But Here was recorded by Eden's Crush, which was the, the girl group from the television series Pop Stars. Uh, a couple years after that, Cherie Austin hit the top 20 on the country chart with Streets of Heaven, which you uh, co-wrote with Cherie and my esteemed co-host Paul. Cool. And, uh, and then there was, uh, there was this song. Just like the sun, 
So that was Donna Summer, who went to number one on Billboard's Hot Dance Club play chart in 2008 with I'm a Fire, which you wrote with Donna and Sebastian Morton. So I have to ask you, Al, now that you are in your sixth decade as a professional songwriter, where do you keep finding inspiration? Well, I find that the craft of writing is, is an art form that you have to use the language of the day. More than ever right now in 2014, we're having cultural things that are happening all over the world. And they say things a little differently. But I never give up. Never I tell writers, never give up. I wrote a lot of pep songs. I wrote a lot of gospel songs. I wrote, you know, it's not ego, but I took everything on as a challenge. Al Kasha took everything on as a challenge and still taking on the challenge of writing songs after all these decades. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. Please visit our website and sign up for our email list. This month, we're giving away a free copy of Al's most recent book, The Ultimate Book on Songwriting. To enter to win, visit our website and send us a message that includes the phrase, Al Kasha Book. Also, if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to visit the iTunes store and leave us a five-star review. And be sure to tell your friends about Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. Your magic hand. Oh